Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Well, hello. Hello. That's very nice. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a very big fan of Matt Hatch. Uh, Apart from him being an Arsenal fan, but we'll leave that aside. Uh, please don't mention the result if you do know it, because uh, that will spoil match of the day later. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, I haven't met anybody from Mosaic Church that I have disliked thus far. That's something, isn't it? Uh, everybody that I meet here is is godly and lovely and welcoming and friendly, and and it's good. So well done, Matt. It's really good. Uh, so if you think you might be the exception to that, well, you can come and spoil my illusion later on if you like. Uh, but maybe you better go and check it through Matt first before you do that. So uh, it's my pleasure tonight to speak to you. Um, we're going to be looking at this deal-breaking question, as Matt put it. Uh, is God a moral monster? Uh, now, let me just caveat this. There is no way in one evening together that we can cover absolutely everything pertaining to this particular question. I am not a philosopher. I'm no Tim Keller. Um, I'm not particularly smart. I have tried and failed epically to do smart, apologetic-style preaching before. I leave that to the experts. I'm a pastor and a teacher and a theologian. And so what I want to try and do this evening is pitch an answer of sorts to this question in a kind of biblical, theological way. Uh, I probably won't be able to answer every question that you have. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this evening, you've maybe been brought kicking and screaming by a friend, uh, I, I can't answer everything for you. You, uh, if you are genuinely struggling and grappling with this question, uh, and it's a potential deal breaker for you, that if you could just maybe get across this line, then you would be able to embrace Christianity and all that goes with it. I think I can probably help you. If you just came spoiling for a fight with a Christian, I, I might not be able to help you, but you could be the judge of that. All right. So what I'm going to try and do is answer this question from a broad perspective and then make some personal application perhaps towards the end, if that is okay. Everyone clear? Rules of engagement set? Excellent. Okay, all should press start. I know I have a certain amount of time. So I don't know how many sermons that you have heard on a Sunday in a church that begin with a quote from Richard Dawkins, but this may be the first. So here we go. Richard Dawkins, in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, describes the God he does not believe in like this. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow, I don't even know what half those words mean, uh, but I'm pretty sure that I don't believe in that God either, actually. I'm pretty sure. Where do those who belong to the movement that is becoming known, and maybe is now officially known as New Atheism, where, where do they find the evidence to support these claims? And can you actually support claims like that about God? Is it actually right? Is the God of the Bible a moral monster? Should we reject him out of hand? Should we be far more squeamish about our faith than we are? Now, there's numerous places that people like Dawkins or the late uh, Christopher Hitchens would maybe turn to to say, well, look, look at what it says here in this scripture, or look at what this bit of the Bible says here, and they would maybe point at certain things and say, look, this is why we have come to this position of thinking that God is a moral monster. There's far too many, as I said, to cover in one evening. 
But what I want to do is try and focus on one particular issue, one part, one thing that perhaps has even been raised for you, perhaps if you would regard yourself as a Christian, perhaps you're a student, perhaps people in your halls or in your house or in your course are questioning and are saying, well, what about this thing? We're going to focus on one particular bit. I don't think I'll even be able to cover all the questions that arise from this one thing either. What I hope to be able to do is to show you how it sits in a broader context and to maybe give you some tools to be able to think through a little bit more clearly how you would answer this question yourself. Preaching shouldn't give you all the answers. It should leave you with more questions if it's good preaching. Okay? You could be the judge of whether it's good preaching at the end. Answers on a postcard to Matt and Mosaic. He can be to blame. In fact, he can be the moral monster. You pick. So, <laughs> we're gonna, I'm going to read some verses from uh, Joshua chapter 6. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, or if you've got it on a, a device, please turn to Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay, because uh, you can lean into the person next to you. Hey, this might be your big moment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> Is that the ESV Deluxe gift set Bible you're rocking? <laughs> Could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV Bible. One, we're going to focus on one verse from this, but I'm going to read a few verses from Joshua chapter 6, okay? Are you there? Are you ready for this? You ready? Scroll, scroll, scroll. You used to be able to hear the kind of rustle of pages in church. Now you have to listen very carefully for the squeak of fingers on devices. That's how it works. Okay, Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to read a few verses here. I'll tell you where I'm going with it so that you can follow along. Verse 1, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And now I'm going to jump down to verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the, devoted, the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Wow. That verse there is a massive thing. And there are no two ways about it. This is a difficult verse to grapple with. 
a verse that seems to suggest that at God's command, an army of Israelites went into a city and slaughtered every living thing in it indiscriminately, apart from Rahab, who won't feature, actually, in the sermon this evening. It's beyond the remit of the sermon tonight to to look at the reasons why it's probably inaccurate to call this section of the Bible the conquest of Canaan. But sufficient, suffice it to say that that's maybe not the best way of looking at it. It's, it's not, we've not got the time, it's not the place tonight. But conquest doesn't give us the right kind of idea. What I want to do, as I said, is set this topic within a broader framework of looking at the Bible. Because sure enough, if you read that on its own, that's extreme and that's difficult. And if you've read that and you've not grappled with the consequences of it, if it has not left you feeling squeamish at all, you probably haven't read it properly. You haven't really thought it through properly. So here's where we're going to start this evening. We're going to look at this big picture of the Bible, the Bible's big story, if you like. If you are into terms like this, we're talking about meta-narrative or a grand narrative or an overarching story that would summarize how the Bible fits together. Um, this is my own personal take on how this works. It's come from lots of study, reading, grappling with the text, grappling with theological meaty times. And so I'm hoping to be able to present this to you in a way that is coherent and intelligible this evening that will help you to understand perhaps how we can get to grips with the scriptures a little bit. We could focus in in minute detail on the text, but I think it's more helpful for us to go wide angle lens at this point. There's been a lot of summaries attempted over the years of how we understand the Bible's big picture, how we understand how it all hangs together. So here I'm going to summarize for you. I'm going to give you a broad brushstrokes thing. It's going to appear on the screen right now. Beautiful. The story of the Bible is the story of the one God, the creator, and his unwavering determination to both rule creation and judge evil by the means of his unique image bearers, humans, despite their sometimes very obvious flaws. Let me say it again. The story of the Bible is the story of the one God, the creator, and his unwavering determination to both rule creation and judge evil by the means of his unique image bearers, humans, despite their sometimes very obvious flaws. You've got to see this stuff, conquest of Canaan or whatever we want to call it, within this big picture. Let's imagine for a moment that this biblical narrative, this meta-narrative, this grand story, this overarching story of the Bible, let's imagine that it was produced as a mini-series for TV uh, with multiple seasons and multiple episodes within each season. I mean, think something like Homeland or, or Lost, for example, actually thinking about it, Lost isn't the best example because no one knows what's happening in Lost ever, do they? It's just, where are we? What's happening? Uh, but, but let's imagine for argument's sake that, that, it was, that we see the scriptures as, like, as being a mini-series in different seasons. And then let's imagine, again, for argument's sake, that we could clearly define each season like this. Creation, fall, Israel, and Jesus. Let's just imagine tonight, for argument's sake, that we could clearly define which season there was in, in those ways, four seasons. Now, the texts that speak of this conquest of Canaan, like we've looked at tonight in Joshua 6, are situated right slap bang in the middle of season three. That's where they come. 
They're in the middle of season three. And season three stretches all the way from Genesis chapter 12 right the way to the very end of two kings in the Bible, or two chronicles, if you want to put it that way. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's to the end of two kings. It's a massive, huge, I mean, imagine the, the dismay of getting the box set of this miniseries and finding about 50,000 episodes in one season with about 25 discs or something. It's a huge, long, stretched out season. The dominant theme of season three in the Bible story within this larger picture that we've been looking at is God's calling and establishing a particular people, Israel, the people of Israel. And God calls them and establishes them to be his means of blessing, ruling, and judging, beginning with a pagan guy called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now, I don't know whether you've really grappled with the radical nature of this before. God's intention to bless the world, to deal with the problem of evil, and to be uh, uh, to restore his good creation begins with a pagan Iraqi guy. Now, if you are a, a, an American brother or sister here today, and you're hearing, I mean, just think of the shock. Wow. In fact, this morning in the South congregation, there wasn't there's an American friend of mine. And I was saying, well, gosh, think about this. You know, here you've got this pagan Iraqi guy who's the means of God's blessing the, the, the nations. This is remarkable. It's an incredible thing. God starts from remarkably small, unlikely beginnings sometimes. Anyway, that's another sermon. <laughs> We're going to look at Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. They should appear on the screen. Here we are. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the word families there at the end can be translated clans. All the clans of the earth. Not just nations in terms of borders that we set out in our modern understanding of nations, but the clans, people groups. God's intention is to bless, to rule, to restore, to judge in the sense of putting to rights. You know, we're very squeamish about the term judgment in our culture, aren't we? Because we hear it through... Uh, the idea of judgmentalism, and we go, oh, no, that's awful. We should be tolerant. We should be inclusive. We shouldn't be exclusive at all. But the Bible's idea of judgment actually has to do with more than just saying that's wrong. It has to do with God saying that's wrong, and I'm going to put it to rights again. I'm going to do something to turn around this situation. And so when we read of Revelation, the, the, the last scene in the Bible's big story, we discover in a new heavens and earth there will be no more tears, and Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eye. It's not just bad stuff stops. It's that God turns it to good and restores and renews in the end. That's what judgment means from a biblical perspective. You have to understand that. It's really, really important. So God called this nation, this people Israel, into being to be his means of both blessing, ruling, and judging. Now here's what John Goldingay, a prominent Old Testament scholar, says of this particular calling. Next slide. No other people has the place in Yahweh's, that's the God of the Bible, uh, in the place in Yahweh's purpose that Israel had. So no other people, even the modern state of Israel, can justify its actions by saying that they imitate Israel's. That's a massively important statement. 
That is a huge statement. Because what happens often when the question is raised, is God a moral monster? Look at this here. Look how this becomes a justification for all kinds of evil in the world. We must understand that the conquest, or whatever we call it, of Canaan, the taking, the destroying of Jericho, was never intended by God to be the blueprint for genocide, to be the blueprint for the expansion of the British Empire, for taking countries not ours and breaking in and stealing and keeping. It's not a blueprint for anything like the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq. It wasn't a blueprint for crusades. God never intended that. This was a specific, concrete, historical thing that God did once. It wasn't even intended to be a blueprint for how other Israelites should live in the rest of their history. Never intended like that. In fact, when you get beyond Joshua, even when you get beyond halfway through Joshua, all of the wars and fights in the Old Testament are defending themselves against invaders. Israel is not an aggressor in the vast majority of the Old Testament. Important point. Now, it's very difficult for us as late or postmodern thinkers, people, to understand and get perspective on this kind of stuff. It, it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't make it go away. But I think it's very important that we understand how this works in its broader context, all right? If we just label, as some people do, the conquest of Canaan as genocide or ethnic cleansing, or we make it the justification for more of the same or claim that that is the case, all we're doing is offering historically inaccurate spin. That's all that we're doing. And you have to be aware of that because all objections to the Bible, to God, are actually objections that have a, a, an agenda or come from a place of uh, assumptions and power or something is going on. So you have to have your antennae up. What is going on here? What's the reason for this? That's another sermon again. <sighs> you could have a whole series on this, Matt, really, couldn't you? I could do it, yeah, no. <laughs> you can do it, it's been hard enough work as it is, thank you. Can we defend the conquest then, or whatever we want to call it? Let's have a look. In defense of conquest, I know that's not the best title actually, having said that it's probably not a conquest actually. This is a really difficult question to grapple with. And let me level with you, it's not fun to speak on this. Not really. Because it involves really digging and looking at, my, at your own heart, at your own understandings. It's a vulnerable thing to do. But the question doesn't go away. And so we have to learn to face it. Contrary to many of the accusations that get pitched against the God of the Bible, that particularly get pitched against the Old Testament texts, you'd be surprised to learn that the Old Testament is a remarkably progressive thing. The Old Testament text is very, very progressive. It's deeply respectful of you as a reader. It assumes intelligence on your part. Isn't that nice of it? It assumes that you will read and think, that you will not rip one piece out of its broader theological constructs and context. It assumes and asks you to grapple with it on its own terms, to listen, to think, to consider, and what happens so often is that we read one bit and throw our toys out of the pram and decide that the whole thing is untrue. And it's foolishness. You're smarter than that. The Bible thinks so. I think so. 
if you engage more deeply with the text, along with other historical and archaeological studies, you'll find that it yields fascinating insights into ancient Near Eastern cultures, such as ancient Israel. So it shouldn't come as a great surprise that there's a bunch of things that could be said about these narratives that don't immediately jump off the page at us. You have to do some digging sometimes. Let me give you just two this evening as a sampling. And there's a lot more, but here's just two as a sampling. The first is this. Jericho, the city of Jericho, was a military fort of around 100 combatants. Now that puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? When you hear Jericho, the city of Jericho, don't think Leeds, a sprawling metropolis that you can drive through for an hour and not see anything green. I'm sorry, I know, but hey, I'm just, just hearsay. <laughs> I drive back to York and it's 40 minutes of glorious green fields and beautiful countryside. It's not this sprawling, spread out thing. It's not open borders particularly. We're talking about a fort, a fortress a strategic position. In fact, geographically, this city of Jericho was placed right in the, the middle of three key trading routes in and out of Jericho. It's a strategic point. There was no more than 100 people in Jericho. That's the likelihood. That's what archaeological research suggests. And they were fighters. They weren't civilians. So when the text describes an army going up into Jericho and killing everything alive in there, apart from Rahab and her household, you mustn't think of a marauding army running through the streets of a big city, hacking to death any person that they find who gets in the way, regardless of whether they are young, old, infirm, whatever they are. It wasn't like that. This was a military base. This was a military operation, a focused, specific concrete, historical, once-only military operation. That's important. The next thing is this. The Bible uses ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric and hyperbole often. There are stock phrases from the ancient Near East that the Bible uses. Now, you might find that shocking. <gasps> but I thought the Bible was dictated by an angel from God. No, <laughs> don't be daft. <laughs> there are stock phrases that the Bible uses such as, we devoted them to destruction. All were destroyed. Phrases like that, you can find other rulers and kings of pagan nations using the exact same terminology. When it's quite clear, historically, that there wasn't complete destruction. The reason being is that you're trying to show not only did we win, but we really won. Here's an analogy. Remember when you were at school, perhaps this is just the lads, I don't know, there might be some football ladies here as well. But I remember at school, going into school the weekend after, uh, the, the day after a packed weekend of premiership football uh, and turning up and knowing full well that, that my team, which happens to be Man United, uh, had, uh, had won a, a match and, and finding, say, a Liverpool supporter and going, we thrash you! Yes, in your face! Now, when I use the term thrashed, are we to think that Manchester United, the players, marched out onto the pitch carrying whips and, and canes and rods? No, of course not. It's hyperbole. It's rhetoric. It means we didn't just beat you. We beat you. And that's what the Bible's doing. That's what the text is doing. It's saying this was a victory and there is no question about that. We won. That's what this kind of language does. The Bible uses that kind of language describe what's going on. Now, I know full well that this doesn't square away everything for you. 
But what I was keen to do is to try and show you that the lifting things straight off the page and going, ah, is not always the best tactic. And that people who do, sometimes the smartest people, people like Richard Dawkins, who is an amazing biologist, is a hopeless theologian and a dreadful historian. And so you mustn't be cowed and, oh my goodness, Dawkins said it, it must be right. No, you have to understand the text respects you. And if you respect the text, you will find insights that will help you greatly in understanding what is going on. We also have to read, though, and try and get through our own assumptions. We have to adjust our own expectations because we are not reading the times. We are reading an ancient text with centuries of culture and history between us and the events. And we have to learn to adjust expectations accordingly. Does that make sense for you? Clear? Just nod your head if that's relatively clear. Thank you. Now, this is quite literally the crux of the matter now. We talked about the, the grand story of the Bible as being four seasons, perhaps. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus. I know we didn't do creation, fall. We started in on Jesus, uh, and Israel halfway through the third season. And where this all lands is in the fourth season and Jesus, the person of Jesus. This is not just some attempt to gloss over it all and say, well, no, it's all okay, it was dreadful then, and then Jesus came and it was great, it was rainbows and flowers and it was wonderful, it was lovely and meek and mild and Jesus smiled in a limp kind of way and hung around with some dudes and that was it. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'll give a nice sloppy smile and everything will be fine. No. What I want to try and show you is that the, the New Testament presents us with Jesus as the climax of the whole way and direction and trajectory that the Old Testament is heading in. He's the climax of the story. He didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't come to say, well, that, all that stuff then about judgment and violence and things, no, we don't, we're not doing that anymore. We're just going to give hugs to one another. We're going to be kind of emo about things, you know? We're just going to hug and, you know, oh, it's going to be lovely. And that's not really what he was doing. <laughs> Jesus is the climax of the Old checkered, long and winding history of God and his people. One of the tragedies in the history of the church, I think, is that somewhere along the road, Jesus became the answer to the question, how do I get to go to heaven when I die? The answer has been Jesus, but the question has been all wrong. Because the Bible never actually asks that question. It's the wrong question. All the way through the Bible, through the whole narrative, through every single genre that it contains, of every literary genre, in every episode of every season, with all of its heroes, with all of its villains, with their piercing clarity and their hazy ambiguity, with its ups and its downs, its successes and its failures, its bright hopes and its false dawns, all the way through the whole scriptural narrative. This question is implicit and at times pokes through the surface a little more explicitly and a little more clearly. But this is the question that the whole of scripture is asking. Uh, there it is. How can God be faithful to his promises to restore creation and judge evil when the very people who were the means to this end, that is the people of Israel, are themselves part of the problem. How can God do what he always said he would do, judging evil when the people he called to be the means are part of that very problem? All of scripture is 
like a, an out-of-control freight train is hurtling towards this point in history where God would do the very thing that he always promised to do. And so we find the weight of this question, driven by the Bible narrative and the long, painful and perplexing problem of evil, is bearing down on the shoulders of the person of Jesus as he is nailed to a Roman cross. It's all heading there. See, the cross is the moment when Jesus draws evil onto himself. Political, spiritual, ideological, personal evil even, yours and mine. He allows it to do its very worst to him. And in the process, he defeats it decisively. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. We have to hear more than just a statement of personal forgiveness and a little bit of a fuzzy feeling, and I feel a little bit better about myself now, thank you. We have to recognize that in this very real, tangible, and historical moment, in this moment of shocking violence and vulgar brutality, in, the, in this moment of gross miscarriage of civic justice, in this moment of apparent weakness and humiliation, we are observing the faithfulness of God and the victory of God in a shocking, surprising way. What we have to do, oh, good friends, is learn to kneel in humility before the cross of Jesus, to acknowledge that in the person of Jesus, we can and we do know who God is. We see him most clearly on the cross. The cross is the point of greatest revelation of who the God of the Bible actually is. And therefore, that becomes the lens for the question, is God a moral monster? You must look to the cross. Not because it's sweeping everything else under the carpet, because somehow in the mystery of God, the providence of God, all those broken bits and ambiguities and all the weaknesses, all the pain is gathered up and it culminates here. As Jesus says, it's finished and gives up his spirit. That's the point where it's all heading, friends. You see, this is high Christology, a high understanding of who Christ is. Not something weak and feeble and a little bit of, oh. This is the point where God proved himself faithful. Precisely because this is where we find out who the God of the Bible truly is, we get to bring all our questions, all our perplexities, all of our pain and pathos to him and look to him and trust him and say, Jesus, I don't understand it's so messed up, it's so broken, it's so dark, but I see you and I see in you God's victory. Help me to understand, help me to live with this ambiguity. We're so hooked on certitude, aren't we, in our culture? You've got to break that. You've got to understand there's ambiguity and you look to Jesus, that's the place where God did it. Let me make this a bit more personal. Because I understand that it's been quite abstract up until now. How might this actually touch on our lives? Am I alright, by the way, too? I went with my wife, Susanna, a few years ago to the Tate Gallery in London. <laughs> Felt a bit out of place. <laughs> I didn't get much from it, to be honest, for quite a long time. 
um, mainly because I'm schooled in instant gratification, just as most of us are. So I wandered around looking at things and going, no. <laughs> For most of the afternoon, a Susanna cooed and awed at various incredible paintings. So she thought, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't understand until, <laughs> until I stopped in front of one particular piece. And I, I looked and there was this painting by Turner called Rockets and Blue Lights. And if you're an art student, maybe you know it. And I really looked, and you know, something happened because I suddenly found that I was being absorbed into this scene of drama, movement, depth, intensity. Something was happening. I saw it. And I don't mean in the way, like, like those awful 3D pictures in the 90s where you had to, oh yeah, I see it as a dinosaur, I think. Oh no. <laughs> no, it's not as a Land Rover. <laughs> something like that. I, I saw something. I, I understood. I was drawn into this thing. And you know, it had been there all the time, hanging there, waiting to be seen and entered into. Here's what had happened. You see, ignorance, my ignorance of what is involved in producing a work of art like that, ignorance of the, the medium, ignorance of all that stuff, formed an alliance with resistance. I didn't really want to be here. I was humoring the wife. Nothing, I'm, that's it, I'm just here. And it had produced in me this stubborn denial that there was anything really worth seeing here until I really began to look. And when I saw, when, if you like, my eyes were opened, denial became impossible and resistance was withered away by beauty and ignorance gave way to an intimate knowledge and a sense of participation in this ancient scene somehow. It was like I was drawn into it. And so I suggest to you this. Some of us, not all, just some, for some of us, ignorance of Jesus forms this unholy alliance with resistance to the idea of God, producing a stubborn denial that there is anything worth seeing at all in the Christian faith. And so I plead with you, Look again at Jesus. Look to the cross. Ask God, even if you don't believe him, oh, help me, show me yourself in the person of Jesus. For others of us still, ignorance of Jesus and resistance to the pain that we carry personally in ourselves produces a stubborn denial that anything is wrong. And so we never stop long enough to really look in case the lid gets lifted off and we have to face ourselves. And then what happens is it gets very easy to rail at a God who's a moral monster. It gets very easy to rail at a God who is out there, or back then, or a bit regressive. We rail at this God as a way of transferring our own pain to a distant deity and remaining in denial about our own deeply wounded self. That's why we do it. The real moral monster is whoever or whatever it is that deeply damaged you. And listen, it might actually even be you. You know, Tom York nailed it, didn't he? You do it to yourself, and that's what really hurts. You do it to yourself. You and no one else. Ow. And that's the pathos of the age, that we wound ourselves, and we sabotage ourselves, and we hurt ourselves, and we rail against God, and we're unwilling to acknowledge that something's wrong, because it means facing us in the light of who God is. 
The true God of the Bible is the one that we see most clearly in the crucified Jesus as he absorbs evil and pain and brokenness and the suffering of our humanity in order to restore us and renew us in his image if we'll come to him, trust him, submit to him. I'll leave you with that thought. Matt. Thank you.